netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Hi, and welcome to this episode of the FX Podcast. I'm Mike Seymour, standing in for John Montgomery, who unfortunately, worst luck in the world, is sick over the uh, holiday break. Uh, on this uh, podcast, we have three uh, people joining us to discuss the film Smile, a deeply disturbing horror film that I totally recommend. Uh, we have Yuval Levy, who was the visual effects supervisor and on set. Also, Vico Sharabani, a terrific guy, great friend of FX Guide. And uh, in addition to being the VFX supervisor on the film, was also the founder of The Artery in New York. And we're joined by the director of Smile, Parker Finn. Just great to get his perspective on the process of doing such an effects-intensive film. Before we uh, cross to those three uh, and the interview that I did with them, I just want to give a plug for the next podcast coming up, which will be with Rob Legato, the three-time Oscar winner, uh, visual effects supervisor, second unit director, great, great um, visual effects guru. Um, anyway, he's going to be discussing the film Emancipation, which is on Apple+. Plus. But that's coming up on the next uh, podcast. Right now, let's cross to this uh, great chat we had with uh, Vico, Yuval, and uh, Parker Finn. Congratulations on the film. It uh, really found an audience. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I was talking to my daughters who are like adults, and one of them is a teacher at a uh, girls' school. And it just so happened that they were all discussing their smile. And uh, freaking out about it. And uh, my daughter was like, had to bite her tongue to say, well, actually, you know, my dad's about to talk to the director. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's wonderful to hear. Um, yeah, it's been, it's, it's, it's been crazy. I've like, heard from uh, a lot of different fr friends, you know, from, from different countries about how like, it's, it's kind of really just crazy how much uh, like it just sort of is in the ether everywhere. You know, it, it, it's, it's very, very wild to me. <laughs> very surreal. Yeah. I've got to say there's something unusually, uh, I don't know, like it's almost at a, a lizard brain level about a, an eerie smile. I, <laughs> I don't know if the, you could say that about any other expression, like any other expression you take at kind of face value, the eerie smile is just deeply, deeply upsetting. <laughs> Nice. Well, sounds like we did our job right. So, so give me some of the backstory of how the uh, project came to be, and in particular, like the timescale. Um, well, so the, the the project all sort of springboarded out of a um, a short film I had made um, yep. back in in 2019 called Laura Hasn't Slept, um, and that. That short film went on to win an award at South by Southwest, which is, um, you know, how, it, you know, it started spreading around uh, Hollywood and it seemed like everybody was watching it and then um, started, you know, taking a lot of meetings about it. And I, I had the opportunity to pitch a feature based off of that short, um, which is what eventually became Smile. And then, you know, my producers at Temple Hill and Paramount as the studio um, really got behind it. And uh, and yeah, I, we were we were off to the races. So you started photography around October 21, is that right? Yes, correct. Right. And how did all this get affected or how badly were you affected by COVID? 
uh, I mean, we were shooting under full COVID protocols. Um, you know, it was it was definitely still it was right before um, Omicron like really exploded. Um, but we, it was still very much, you know, we were we were constantly testing. Everybody was masking. There was um, we had air scrubbers on on set. We had a full COVID team. Um, you know, it was uh, COVID was a major part of of production for a movie uh, this size. I mean, we were you know we're we're modestly budgeted for uh, certainly for a studio film. Um, and well aware that as like a first time director, I got a, a lot of resources, but um, you know, there was, there was a significant portion of that, that, that went towards keeping everybody safe. So can I swing to the VFX guys and ask, when did you guys first get involved with the project? So we met uh, on zoom, we met uh, Parker, I think it was August, uh, a, a couple of months before uh, principal photography, maybe it was even July. And um um you know we were presented this first time director that everything we saw and heard and uh, the conversations with him were like we definitely in this <laughs> we, we definitely want to get in in on this uh the quality the type of conversation artistic the the uh psychological the philosophical everything about it had like uh, something unique and you know like when people hear about uh, horror films they don't expect something that will be executed at that level we kind of saw it from the beginning so we definitely jumped on uh, saw the opportunity to jump on yeah well Vic I think you guys did a great job and you've, uh, you were actually on set right you were uh, the onset. Yeah, I was on set, offset. I think first time Vico brought me in was a, was the scout when I came in, and I think the first uh, conversation I had with Parker was when we got to this field where we were supposed to build this house. And when we came in, we just I think there was a guy plowing the field where all those <laughs> all, the, all the vegetation that that Parker loved was just gone. Yeah. And like start talking about how how we're gonna make it work, and it was the first time we were talking about uh, how we're gonna play this house and what will be the best location. And I think that first conversation, uh, I really felt like we could be a creative partner here and not just like an executioners. And where and was that location that you were talking about? Like where? There which... was in Newark too. It was Jersey. New I think Jersey. Jersey. Yeah. yeah, everything was in was in Jersey. Um, yeah. Which was, you know, it was a great opportunity to go and shoot there. There was definitely certain times where, like, man, if we could like just go across, you know, the river, like, like there's the perfect thing right over there in New York. But, um, you know, we we had we had made a uh, a, a plan um, to to do everything in in New Jersey, and yeah, that field was on some sort of municipal property. It was funny because, yeah, you've all you're giving me, uh, <laughs> giving me uh, a little bit of PTSD about that moment on the text scout. We we found this perfect. It's where Rose's um, childhood home is is set and um you know we we had my production designer and i and and dp we had, we had found this location you know fell in love with it it was like really overgrown really felt like it could be sort of like an abandoned place set right against the woods loved it and um you know we'd spoken to the to the you know the the people who were sort of controlling it through the city and we asked you know like what's the deal with this they're like, yeah, it like doesn't get touched. It maybe, you know, gets like they come out and they they mow the grass that was like, you know, it was like three or four feet tall. 
Um, they're like, yeah, they do it like once a year, maybe for maintenance and that's it. You know, otherwise it doesn't get touched. We're like, great. Like, don't do anything to it. We love it. And then we show up a week later for the, you know, for the tech scout and like, we're getting off the bus and <laughs> there's a guy on a giant rider mower in the middle of mowing the whole thing, like basically turning it into like a golf course. Like it was like, it was, it was, it couldn't have been worse timing. It was like, and you know, and of course we get off the bus and everybody's turning in like, what are we doing here? And um, you know, so we, we very quickly had to pivot. And luckily at that same location, we, we got that guy to stop mowing called the people who were in charge of the location. They're like, Oh, there was a big mix up. I like, he wasn't even supposed to be there. And, um, Luckily, there was another area that we were able to make work. We just had to really readjust our plan at that point. Yeah. So let me take you back to pre-production for a second. And one of the things that I'm really interested in, Parker, is like, obviously, from your point of view, you're just telling, you want to tell the story first and foremost, obviously, you're a filmmaker, but you want to just tell the story. So, so the question always comes down to, especially in a film like this, practical or digital. And I guess for a lot of us, there's sort of like a real um, interest in understanding your thinking uh, as a director on on which way you go with that. Because there's sort of two schools of thought here, right? There's one where you like, everyone says, oh, I want to do it as practically as possible because there's kind of fun in that, I guess. And then there's another point of view, which is the audience. And certainly in my case, when I'm screaming and jumping behind the couch, I don't care whether you did it in digital or practical. I just, you know, want to know what happens next. What was your thinking process and how did you decide on which way to go with things? Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I just sort of like philosophically, um, you know, I always want to put as much in front of the camera as possible. Um, you know, and also as like a, a horror fan, you know, I grew up with practical effects, so that's always what I lean in on. It's something that I have experience with, but, you know, in all of my, um, independent, like short films and stuff I'd made, previous it was always this blend of of you know taking the practical effects as far as we can and then using visual effects as as a bridge to really bring them alive to life in post and you know when i was first meeting and speaking with different you know um vfx houses um this was a big part of sort of like the philosophical conversation um and i think what was really great you know especially that first time i met vico was that you know uh Vico is all about like potentially trying to talk themselves out of a shot because, you know, like, because he, he, he understood what I was, what I was really trying to achieve. And um, so, so we, we always, at any time we could, we, we started with practical, took that as far as we possibly could. And then, you know, had the plan to then truly bring it to life on screen. Just to unpack that for a second. Is it, is it because that gives the actors more to respond to, or is it because you, think that visually on screen the digital has a different look than the practical or is it just you yourself just want the the experience and uh, believe it's going to give you a better kind of creative process you know it's a, i think it's a bit of a soup of all of those things i think that you know certainly um you know things there there's for the way that i like make films and and especially when it comes to some of the um you know, the horror effects that are happening inside of the film. Um, you know, I, I, I really want to be able to like roll up my sleeves and, and have, you know, a major hand in the design elements of some of those things. And um, to, to, to truly know like, okay, what is, even, even if, even if there's going to be VFX layered on top of it, like, what is this, what is this base that we're starting with? What's the foundation? What does that look like? How does it work? Um, how far can we take that? And, you know, I, I think that, you know, unless you've, 
it, it depends. I think that that when you're when you shoot for VFX, you know, in a very clever, intelligent way, and you have a really solid plan, um, you can make things look really, really great on a budget. Um, you know, we also, I think we've all seen films that have maybe not gone in with the most solid plan and just figured, oh, we'll, we'll do it with VFX on the other side of things. And then you end up with these sort of like, you know, occasionally these 3D models that like don't really sink into the world. Um, you know, that can be, that can, I think, take you out. I'd rather, at least me as, as a fan and as, as a filmmaker, um, I, even if I can tell that something is like, you know, there's a little bit of a flaw with the practical effect um, the fact that it's like there and has weight and gravity and the person, the performers interacting with it, um, it, it, I think it keeps me in just a, a bit longer than if something feels directly like there's nothing there, the actor's not interacting with anything. I see you're, you're, you're nodding a lot as, uh, as, no, I think that's, here. I think that's, I mean, that's exactly where we sort of, I think that's where we clicked, I think, because this is, uh, although I come from visual effects. It's the last thing I want to do is invent things that are not based on reality. And I think we had a lot of conversation about that. Like there was a scene that we knew it's going to be mostly CG fire, but we still had a stunt burning on set because we felt that we need to see how it's going to be captured in camera, how it's going to look within the set. So we had a lot of discussion. Oh, but this is going to cost that much, or that's going to be that much more complicated. But I think we, me and Parker, we agreed all the time that we want to capture get as much practical as like take practical as far as we can and just extend sort of like wherever, wherever this ends, that's where we start. And, and that was the whole process. That was a whole idea. I mean, the whole methodology is just collect as much elements that will give us later, you know, that kind of sense, even if it's being done later on in post, uh, it's sort of grounded very much in what was captured in, in camera on set. So Vika, there's there's two sides, to this, isn't it? Like there are things like the the house burning, where it's not in all obvious that it's visual effects, but obviously it's a much better idea to burn a house digitally than it is to burn it down, especially for for the inability to do a take two. But then Vika, the other point of view is uh, there are shots that are going to be clearly visual effects because they're breaking the laws of physics and in a demonic way. Um, can you just talk to those two different approaches? Because, like in one of them, it's it's a it's basically hidden effects, but it's absolutely vital. And sometimes they don't even like hidden effects, like the fire. But I mean, like uh, moves with the camera or blending shots or just stuff that is like you know sort of more of a filmmaking process rather than a than a you know jaw did I say jaw dropping <laughs> jaw dropping moment? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, jaw dropping is, is is definitely for all everyone who who saw the film. Um, it, it's literally jaw dropping at, at one of the shots, but um, um, we we counted uh, after completing the the whole show. We counted it, it's been like seventeen minutes of visual effects. Most of them are are not even as you as you mentioned. It's like blending takes. It's like perfecting uh, the the camera movement. It's it's a lot of things that are happening there. Um, Quite frankly, from everything that we prepped, I don't think maybe a handful of shots were a surprise or or something that is like a a little bit of a of an imperfection on set <laughs> that happened. But I, I, I gotta admit that it doesn't happen often that you go through 
such meticulous planning and everybody's exactly on the same board and we know exactly where we're, we're heading uh, to the point that we actually could escalate things. So we talked about the house burning before. Then when we were on set, uh, I said, you know, what happens if we collapse the 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 ceiling you know we we were able to bring more because everything was so precise and we're like you know what we will take it further whenever we can to service uh, parker's vision uh, and uh, and escalate a little bit the the effects yeah yeah um, I, I think i think we could know that that i mean you you were saying about mike about that and and I have something to add about that because I've been talking to people like that. You know, we have that shot where the guy is ripping his face off. <laughs> uh, I yeah. think somehow people believe that to be practical. Like people see that, and there's sort of in their mind it works. I don't think it jumps as a visual effects. And I know Parker been talking about this being practical. It's true. There's a lot of elements that are practical, but somehow people don't even think about the fact that we. There's no way that a guy can really rip his face to reveal this monstrous underneath. Uh, another shot that comes to mind is a shot where we go into uh, Saucy's back and Rose, Doctor Rose's eye, and it's a crazy camera move. It's completely impossible, and somehow everybody believes that Parker just found that perfect camera that can dive into someone's pupil. So I think we somehow we, we made it. We made that leap of faith that um, sort of makes everything believable to the point that people just trust that it was maybe done in camera. I don't think the visual effects jump even in those moments where it doesn't make sense. Yeah, actually, if you talk, if you talk to Saucy Bacon, she will yeah. tell you everything was practical. Yeah, if I saw her, I saw an article when she was saying that we did just a little bit of visual effects, just a tiny bit. And I was I'm like, okay, if we convinced her, uh, that's you know, because her face is fully CG when we dive into her eye. Yeah, you know, it's that. Yeah. So that means all three of those, you know, like so for Saucy's eye, for example. I mean, like, yeah, we we did a lot of different. We, we captured so many practical elements and then I know there were scans and stuff done of her face. So we're, we're, again, it's all starting from all of these practical elements. Um, yeah. When, when or the sort of like nightmarish version of her mom sort of like tears her, her face in half to, to reveal what's underneath all those grinning jaws and stuff. Um, you know, that's, that's happening on set, but it's, but, but there's all these different elements that are being, you know, put together as one and then added to in a big way, but, it, but, it, but the, you know, the, 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 the movement, all of the, the, um, the foundation for all of that was, was practically done on set. And then even, you know, her, her, her childhood home when it's burning in the field. I mean, so we, you know, we had built this facade. We talked a lot about how we were going to execute that because we had to figure out how to do it inside of our budget box. Um, and, and I think, you know, everybody has seen like a bad version of VFX fire. I think it's getting much, much, much better, but I, you know, there is something about starting with, with something that's real. And so, you know, we, we lit up that facade. I mean, we had, we had special effects on, on the ground, you know, running, uh, tubes of, of propane, you know, blowing out those windows. Um, and we were able to, you know, we, we got three takes on that thing before it was totally cooked. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and, you know, beforehand, you've all, you guys had, had captured, um, you know, scans of all of that too, so that it could be manipulated in post, but 
all that, that the source of, of the fire, all that light, all of that, you know, that was captured in camera and then added to, you know, more fire is brought in on top of it. But I think like, again, like in every scenario, we're starting in these places that, that are, are very practical before we then bring in the visual effects. And I love that blend. Yeah, and exactly, this is, this is exactly the reason that it's really hard to figure out where do practical effects leave and where do digital effects take off. Just just put a pin in that for one second. I think, could Parker, could you just give us a quick on who did the practical effects? Because there obviously was significant, uh, uh, you know, effects that were not digital. Who, who was behind that and how did that work? Right. So, I mean, like, you know, for, 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 um, you know, the, the, um, basically what we're looking at like, when you bring up practical effects, there's basically three different, uh, like major departments that touch that. Right. So when, when we get into like the big, you know, monstrous stuff at the end of the film. Um, so that was amalgamated dynamics. That was, you know, Tom Woodruff Jr., Alec Gillis and their team. Um, oh, very good. Very good, and 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 I, I've been I've been a huge fans of of, of theirs uh, for such a long time. They worked on, you know, they, they used to work with Stan Winston. They built the Alien Queen for Aliens. They you know they built Pumpkinhead. They built Goro. They did like, all these amazing things um, that I grew up on, and it was you know it, like it was very cool to 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 bring them in um, because they really you know not only do they really understand monsters and stuff like that, but they they have you know all these really clever engineering tricks to sort of you know pull off all these things and you know everything from like you know we we like even like rose's mouth being stretched open i mean that is a practical effect that's then taken further with uh visual effects um, <laughs> so cool yeah. um that was yeah. very fun to shoot um and then for for a lot of the sort of like um like you know uh throughout the film there's moments of like violence and 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 um you know sort of like trauma to the body and things like that and uh we worked with uh, an artist named Jeremy Sellenfriend who who did a lot of that of the molding and the execution um of all of that that, that all started practical you know when 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 Dr. Desai tears his face off that was that was um Jeremy's work as well with some visual effects yeah that was that, i mean that's a good example about like that that how that worked for instance that's a good example so we had we had he had a prosthetic face a replica when it, and it was like removed right he sort of like peeled his face that was done practically but it actually didn't quite look like the actor so we had to do a face replacement <laughs> over that replica of the face so it's sort of like that shows you know how we worked over the practical effects. It, so there were parts of it that did work, sort of like that flap of piece of skin that fell off that felt realistic and uh, the dynamic of it. But actually face didn't look like the actor, so we had to do a face replacement. And then right. add layers of skin over it, track that little flap and add all those pieces of skin and layers and blood and all that stuff over that. So it was really like working, and we scanned that as well, so we'll be able to match it precisely. So it was a it was a very close dynamic between us and the props and the effects as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Then did you example. say there were three things? Yeah. So think, yeah. so then you know the 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 um you know the rest of the like on set special effects. So so the, the two biggest things being blood and fire um, was you know a, a special effects artist named Eugene Hit who and his team that you know they they figured out how to you know anytime that we needed to pump blood or um or to um light something up um you know that was that was that fell under his department 
Um, so, you know, we had, we had a lot of, of, of real practical stuff going on and then sort of everybody was interfacing with, with visual effects as well. And of course, you know, when, when it comes to fire, then you're bringing stunts in, you're bringing, it, it, it becomes this big sort of, um, um, conversation between a lot of people, but yeah, those were, those were the, the sort of three practical effects. Um, and Fika, yeah. did you end up doing what I would call, um, digital makeup like because it struck me that on some of the shots the smiles were so static and so scary that maybe you'd uh not i don't know hands is the wrong word but like you know polished some of that stuff and and also just generally on on the face stuff because there's of course cutting of necks and all that kind of stuff i presume there was some work to blend that in um uh, uh, the, uh, there was actually minimal stuff oh, really? uh, uh, on the a monster mom at the end you know like matching that type of makeup and stuff like that but uh i gotta admit the the, the all of the departments when parker is def detailing how he worked with all of the departments he pushed each and every one of us so it, 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 like when you when you go and you say you know what the makeup will be doing something and visual effects will do something and the cinematographer will do something everybody were outside their comfort zone to an extent you know like at, at the con those conversations because it, it's like again it, it this film was not meant to be a theatrical release it was not meant to be uh that big of a hit and uh i think that his leadership actually got everybody to do more than expected originally and ultimately made the film what it is yeah yeah because that that tr that i guess the thing that as an outsider to our industry looking in they assume that the practical guys are basically at loggerheads with the visual effects guys they almost imagine that it's like you know elbowing each other out of the way to sort of get the work but in fact in my experience that isn't the case at all the the practical guys are very digitally savvy they're not in any way naive to how great it can be to help enhance and continue or to take over uh, I, a shot. I think it's actually, I, I mean, working closely with them was surprising how much I feel like they lost some confidence and I've seen it in other projects, to be honest. Like, I feel like they don't trust that they can do so much as they used to be before. And they're like, you know, maybe you can do that in post. And I think here, because of Parker Vision, which was so strong, like you can tell. I, so when I was on set, I was like, with working with Eugene, he's like, Let, let's try to get it in camera. Maybe you can push the blood. Maybe we can do that drop practical. So it was actually me like sort of like supporting him, telling you, we can do that. We can do the knife. We can try, you know, have the stub sort of like the stub, the, the knives when it stops leaving those marks on the shirt practically. So I actually believe that they, because they're so savvy and because they know so much could be done later, they're sort of like took a step back. And I think in this movie was like, no, step forward. Let's try to do as much as you can. And, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that it works at the end. And uh, yeah, so I think they definitely push their boundaries of what they can do on all departments. And just to, uh, yeah. like Vic was saying, I mean, there was, we felt this escalation in the movie once we went theatric, once, you know, Parker told us, I remember that call is like, Hey, uh, you will come over. You know, it's like we're going theatrical. I was like, I remember we were like shocked. But after that, it was just like taking everything and pushing it even further than we all expected. I mean, we all went into a different gear because now it's going to yeah. play 
Yeah. M- Mike, on, on set, the, the, and while Parker was uh, shooting, uh, Yuval and Tom and Eugene uh, actually collaborated constantly. And every time going back to Parker and showing, okay, how about this? How is this far enough? Do you want more blood? Do you want less blood? He, continuously, there was a very tight collaboration there. So if people think that there's a, a ego or, or jurisdictions, uh, it definitely was broken on this team. So, so Parker, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, uh, did you have like a really bad nightmare to have the skinless creature with the multiple mouths or was there <laughs> someone in the art department that was traumatized as a child? How, how, how did that character design come out? Because that was like truly freaky. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I, so it was, it was actually um, an image that I had in my head from, you know, the, before I even started writing the script. Um, and then it was written really, really specifically into the script in that way. And um, I knew that that sort of, you know, the it was a movie. I don't think that people were anticipating a, a giant nine foot tall monster at the end of, um, you know, that that was hopefully going to, you know, come out of left field and very much surprise them, which I was always excited about. And it was always it was always about like, how can we show like maximum impact, but also use restraint, you know, and like really limit the amount that we see of it. And um, so, you know, it was written, I mean, especially that sort of like that wide tableau of, of it, you know, pulling Rose's mouth open and starting to go inside of her. I mean, that was that was really detailed in the script about how we were seeing that. And um, and then I had drawn sort of this like rudimentary um, uh, version of that and then worked with a, uh, a concept artist named Vincent Prost to like, you know, he took that and, and turned it into a piece of art and then. Um, and then when we 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 brought um, you know Tom and Alec and their team on um, you know they're they're these incredible artists as well who've made a lot of monsters over the years so so they they took all of the you know the design details that were really important to me and what was happening and how we were going to see it and and you know uh, rebirthed it one more time through the lens of their own sort of um, you know uh, ideas with monsters and so it kind of became this this uh, this this evolution. So if I can deep dive on that for a second. So so explain to me your directorial process in terms of the blocking and the filming of that. Like, had you previewed it? Like, just in terms of like, I know you're obviously working with the cinematographer on lens choices and everything else, but I'm still really curious because, you know, you don't have just uh, the typical actors in the room that you can just, you know, find stuff. You have to plan. So how did you go about blocking staging that, end sequence given that it had all these practical and digital effects and it was hallucinations and and whatever do you do you mean planning for that or on the day well no well obviously planning for it so that on the day you know you walk in there do you do you like to keep options open so you can walk the space with the actor and find out where they're comfortable or do you have it like previews digitally or do you just have kind of storyboards like how do you what's your process for getting that uh sequence filmed yeah, well, so we we on this film we unfortunately did not have much money for for previs um, was not really and, and and just time in general. I mean, we were off the races so fast on it. Um, but you know, I think again, it, it sort of started with you know, I had I had sort of had a, a series of of drawings that were that were explaining that whole scene that like it's 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 interesting. You know, I, I actually put that together a document to show the studio um uh like what that was gonna because you know the reading the script they're like what is this gonna look and feel like 
And oh. um, so, so I wanted to make sure that everybody was on board. And it was, a, it was also a, a nice shorthand to be able to communicate with all of the departments on it. So I put that together. Um, and, you know, that was our, our starting point. And, you know, I, I those sorts of things. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a fairly specific uh, guy when it comes to um, how the camera is capturing a scene, the blocking, the staging, where the actors, you know, I want to give the actors a ton of room to, to, to play with with the nuance of performance and all of that. But a lot of times when you're working with with incredibly specific effects and and and, and an incredibly specific um, you know camera gaze, um, you know, you, you inevitably um, you have to give them a box to work inside of. And so, you know, having the definitions of that box was, was, was really important from the beginning. And, you know, I got to say like, it's, it's pretty much, it's really close to like a one for one translation from like every step of the way, um, you know, from how it was written in the script to the artwork, to how we staged it, um, was, was, that exact image. I remember we we sort of needed all that that runway to get the the, the practical effects because that that the big giant version of that monster, you know, that's that's a performer that's like half inside of those uh, inside of of those prosthetics, and then the rest of it is being puppeted by other uh, artists, you know, who are in frame and obviously being being taken out digitally, um, and you know, it's it, it's one of those things. I remember we, we got there and it was funny. Um, one of our producers on the film, Bob Salerno, he, you know, he got there and he was like, he's like, oh my God, he's like, this is the image that you've been like showing me, you know, since the very beginning, you know? And it was like, it was, it was, and it just was this, this, um, it was really cool too. Cause I think you know, it's one of those moments that everybody gathers around on set, you know, you've got this nine foot monster, you're really making what feels like, you know, classic movie magic. And, and, and it's a really exciting thing, but, but that the, the amount of conversations we had about that moment and sort of the the trial and error of like philosophical ideas uh all the way up leading up to it was was what got us to such a strong plan and allowed us to execute it that way yeah i guess the other thing I mean, you'd mentioned showing the studio but i mean also just in terms of the actors like your actors have to work at a couple of levels here right like firstly they have to have some idea what's going on although it can be quite bewildering but and and isolating for an actor because you know they can't immerse themselves so much because there's so much technology or infrastructure. And then also we, we get the drama from them, right? Like, so it's sort of like, once you see the film, you go, well, obviously that's what they would look like. Cause it seems such a natural performance, but, but there are many ways they could play stuff. I presume you had to sort of spend a, when in the shooting schedule was that sequence? Like, I mean, obviously chronologically it's the end of the film, but is it in yeah. shooting where, where was it in the second to last day maybe okay the, i think we burned we yeah second to last burned I think last day yeah the last day we was... parker burned the whole set and that was that was <laughs> that was a really cool finale uh we just like the fire scene just burned the set at the end yeah. and so uh, was yeah. there any way that you were trying to work with the actors to give them you know the tools that they needed to deliver what you wanted yeah of course i mean it, it, that's a especially in a film like this i mean you uh Sosie Bacon, who plays Rose, you know, she's in almost every scene of the film and she's operating at these really, really intense levels. I mean, the film was was designed to really, really um, attach to her subjective. Yep. We're, we're really with her and, and, and it's, you know, it's, it, even it's thematically, you know, that it, it's, it's thematically relevant to what she's going through as well, right? That we are, you know, really experiencing things through her perspective. And um, so, you know, we, she and I were in a, in a, in a, 
constant conversation about the character. And we started in prep and, and, and continued forward. And it's just about having that open dialogue. And, and what's, you know, Sosie is so uh, extraordinarily talented and she has this really uncanny ability to, to, um, to bring nuance to moments that, that, that can feel very huge. Right. And, 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 you know, it, one of the reasons that I cast her in the film was because she's able to grab an audience and ground them in a character and, and draw them in so that when she goes to these extraordinary places, we go right with her. And so it's just about, you know, that that give and take. I mean, when, when you're directing on set, there's so much going on, especially with, with you know, I, I, I tend to get very technical. Um, I mean, directing is very technical, but like, I think I, I go, I go sort of above and beyond on some of that as well, but I always want to make sure that there's room that, that, that I'm, that I'm equally spending time with the actor to make sure that they're comfortable in the performance, any questions they have, you know, that, that we're in constant dialogue with one another. And then, you know, it's just about creating sort of that, that, that uh, sort of atmosphere of, of trust where, you know, she's, she's, she's kneeling in front of this big giant nine foot half sort of built puppet that the performers half outside of and all of that, that, that she knows at that point that, that it's going to work, right. So that she can just focus on, on what the drama is of the moment. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing we, we talk about trust as if it's like a tick box, right. But it's much more than that, isn't it? Because honestly, if she doesn't feel like it's going to be genuine on a genuine presence on screen with her, then not this particular actress, but any actress, right, is going to fall into that nervousness that's sort of reflected in not a full commitment to the, they have to believe in you and believe in the visuals, even though it might be as silly as standing in front of a rubber puppet at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and you know, what's a great example of something and, and I'm sure, you know, you've all, you can, you can also, I'm sure you remember this. Um, there's, there's the moment, the scare that actually sort of became uh, quite viral, quite famous of um, her sister Absolutely. approaching the car <laughs> while Rose uh, is sitting yeah. inside of the car. Yeah. Um, the, you know, was, it was sort of the jump scare that I think was heard around the world. Um, but, you know, on the day when we were shooting that, um, there were, I think like, you know, that was such a sort of like silly thing to shoot that I don't think like any, anybody that was sort of like, you know, anybody that wasn't touching it directly was sort of like scratching their head, looking at what we were doing. Like, what is going on? Here? I think, I think it was only me and you, Parker. I think we're the only ones who believe that we actually can make it work. It was just like, we'll try it. We'll see what happens. But just <laughs> to clarify yeah. for people that are listening, this is the point in the film where the sister walks up and from the interior point of view of the car, the sister's head seems to fall while still attached to the body and sort of swing in a way that necks aren't meant to do. It, it's as if her neck was elongated, broken, and then, but still attached to the body in a, so it's not a bloody scene. It's, but because it's swinging in the head and it's on a kind of extended neck, yeah, I mean, it could have looked like a bad chicken joke, right? I mean, it didn't. Yeah. It, I I had a WTF moment and I had to rewind and like, I was like, yeah, what it, was, the? it was it was one of those yeah. moments where like Parker was saying, it's like, will it work? And we we're just like, you know, there was an element I must say in this movie with with Parker that I felt there was a, as much as everything was planned and we knew exactly what we do and we talked about it with you know it was all these discussions. There was an element of play in some of those visual effects 
And as much as it's scary and it's horrific, when we were making it, we were sort of laughing a little bit and we had fun just thinking That's, about it. And it was a little bit like, a, you know, we were, we were playing around with different but ideas. But at that point in the film, the audience almost wants a scare slash laugh release, right? Like, because... Yeah. Like that's one of the joys of seeing these kind of films, right? It's like the tension and the release. Um, Vico, if I can swing around to post-production for a second, um, offset. So what was the pipeline for you guys? Like what was the technical pipeline? Um, what were you finishing in and, uh, and how did you approach it technically? Yeah, well, uh, we actually uh, uh, discussed it of, of being, uh, we wanted to start heavy, you know, like we wanted to uh, give Parker for his first preview with the studio have all of the shots because uh, wow. we we knew we knew that it's it's meaningful for for things like this to not be imagined so even if they were not finished obviously it was critical that we will touch each and every one of them so a uh, technically it was actually hard to do to start with opening up all the shots and as you understand parker probably tweak them till the day of delivery uh so uh, it, it was it was a, it wasn't an easy thing to maintain uh, so many shots open usually you would try to close sequences or reels and stuff like that um uh, we try to give him that freedom of uh feeling what happens and stuff like that I think it was crucial just for the story of the movie. And I know it's crucial in that mm -hmm. sort of like progression of the movie. We blocked out all of the visual effects at the very, very beginning. Even if it was not perfect, we just did something. So Parker had a movie that he could show and people could get the scare and sort of get the gist of it. So the house was on fire. The neck was swinging. You know, the face was staring. It wasn't perfect. But I think it really helped that scre famous screening where that movie was the breaking point where that became a theatrical release. So we, it was from beginning to end, the, the movie could play. And that was something that we agreed on. And like Vico was saying, all of the shots were open. We just went in on everything, which was, uh, in terms of production, was difficult, but it was worth it for sure. In terms of- Yeah, it, it's, it's worth, it, it's worth uh, mentioning by name, uh, Dave Stewart and, and Joe, Grunfast that that uh, led the CG and the creatures uh, uh, in there, and our uh, a, a comp team, uh, Arif and John Bedine and uh, Thurman, our producer. There, there, there were a lot of people involved that, uh, in order to keep this open and juggle all of the th things, and and obviously in the middle of a project like this, imagine that not only everything is open, but all of a sudden you get the call that the the delivery escalated to HDR theatrical, which is a, a completely different thing that yeah, created- Yeah, especially with Fire that has all that range, you know, yeah. visible on screen, yeah. Yeah. So that was, yeah, yeah. Just, just to give a, a, a sense of what it means, if, if black is zero and uh, white is, is one, our flame was at 1500. So all of a sudden, we change the eye or we, we change something small in the scene. It's very delicate um, a, to, to maintain an HDR theatrical. That was, we were very happy to deliver at that level and not being prepared for it from the beginning. So Vika, you'll excuse me, you know me, mate, we've known each other for years. I'm going to get technical with you. So just give me some of the specs. So it's a 2K pipe, is it, when you started? 
No, no. Uh, okay. uh, we actually, so uh, uh, we delivered 4K, okay. but we uh, uh, some of the shots we worked at, at, at 6K uh, for two reasons. Um, one, a lot of them needed to push in quite a bit, let's say the eye shot or stuff like that. Or in terms of stabilization, you need to push in in order to stabilize and, uh, and all of those things. And uh, at the beginning, we, you know, like they, we were lucky that we worked at 4K because at the beginning, there was a question. Uh, what happens these days, and we see it quite often, the streamers are looking for 4K and the studios are used to uh, completing it 2K. And Parker was very adamant that it doesn't, uh, it, it, it doesn't, it didn't stop in every demand for every department. And that was, uh, a, a very important thing, I think. So this is Ari 65 going to Ari Raw, and then presumably you had like an open EXR pipe. So Correct. I understand that you went to a high dynamic range, and obviously that really affects, especially in comp, making sure that you know you can see into those darks. But but if you're in open EXR, why does that like just explain to people why that makes any difference? Because theoretically, open EXR is like floating points. So like already you've got the dynamic range, wouldn't it? You could argue only matter at the DI. I think exactly. it's the, the DI, yeah, the DI, yeah. That was a big thing, and I think also the fire that was captured on set. Sometimes it's hard to manage fire because you never know when you capture it. You know the levels that it will reach. So maintaining that and matching that was always making sure that we're not clipping, that we have all that range that's matching the actual footage that was captured. So it's like the flow from the beginning was something that we had to maintain all the way to the DI. Parker, was it your desire to shoot uh, like Ari 65? Like, was that, because uh, that's, you know, it's not necessarily the cheapest way to go, but it's certainly a very good way to go. I presume your cinematographer had a major say in this as well. Well, so yeah, my my uh, DP, Charlie Seraf and I, you know, we we had started talking early on about, about the image itself. And, you know, um, uh, uh, Ari were really great partners, by the way, and they sort of they they were able to make it work within our budget range. I think we we happened to be shooting at a perfect time when there were a couple of sixty fives sitting around not being used. Always helpful. <laughs> yes. So so and and we actually went in with the idea. I had actually I actually had brought up the sixty five to Charlie first, and immediately it was like, can we do that? Like that would be amazing. But it was it was not about the 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 you know six and a half. It wasn't about the resolution at all. Um, for me, it's about, you know, the, the size of that sensor and, and using this, these, you know, this large format glass. And, um, you know, we, we had talked a lot about how we were going to be, you know, utilizing the frame and things like negative space. And, and I knew, like, I really love putting a camera right up in a character's face um, and, and I wanted to, to, you know, create a depth of field, but also like, I love that with that size sensor, it doesn't create the warping you might expect when you're on a very wide lens, right up close in someone's face. It keeps their face more natural, but it, and it creates this very sort of, um, um, surreal portrait of them. And then when you go into these wides, you, know, you get all this depth of field, you get, you get a, you get like really incredible negative space. And it was all about, you know, roses vulnerability and isolating her and and wanting to be you know constantly on wide 
wide lenses, um, whether we were right up in her face or or we were, you know, in a wide. And um, there's very few, you know, like we, we built a very specific visual language of the film and we found we went and did some tests and we found that the 65 really leaned in um, with what we were going for sort of um, with our visual language. It was, it was less about, you know, capturing all that resolution, I think is, is, is a bonus, but it, it, and it came in handy when we needed it, but it was less about that and more about how we were utilizing the sensor. With those lenses and with that sensor, you can also go really high on, on ISO, right? I mean, it's a very good yeah. sensitivity and you had some dark stuff. Did that affect your lighting package and like, and you could, were you shooting in low light or was it more of the case that, uh, you were grading it down later. Um, we were, I mean, we were shooting in, in lower light and then, if, I mean, everything of course gets, gets touched by the grade, sure. but, um, no, yeah. I mean, we were trying to, to, there was, there was a lot of time spent dialing in the lighting on, on set. And, you know, we had worked with our, our, uh, colorist Dave Cole over at, um, Photochem ahead of time to, to build a LUT. It was, we had, we had a single show LUT and, um, and that was very helpful in, in, you know, just sort of keeping us honest on set. But, you know, I think that, that we wanted to be bold with darks um, and, and how, you know, especially when you have scenes where you've got, you know, pools of light, and pools of dark and, and feeling that we were really creating that on set and then, you know, wanting to not, you know, we, we didn't want to have to rely solely on the DI. We wanted to use the DI to enhance. So, so we were, we were, we were pretty specific, but yeah, I mean, um, I know that, that Charlie and our, our, our gaffer, um, Joel Minnick, like talked a lot and we, we traded a ton of references, um, ahead of time and, and yeah, I'm quite, quite pleased with the result. And Vika, what were the tools you guys were using at uh, your shop? And I pre I'm like going to guess like some Nuke and some Houdini and, Houdini and stuff, but uh, well, what were you using at your end? Yeah, there, there was Nuke and Houdini, but uh, a lot of flame. Yeah. Um, All right. Uh, yeah, especially when we, when we wanted to keep everything open and give Parker two reviews a week and stuff. It's, it, it's just the speed of flame helped quite a bit. Uh, in order to keep everything open, being able to manage a lot of shots and move them along uh, fairly quickly. Um, <clears throat> we did also uh, 3D Max for uh, the creatures animations. Um, and uh, Maya, Maya. Maya. Yeah. I, I think, yeah. Yeah. Everything. It was a pipeline of everything, everything that could work in a specific area that they're good at, you know, and the, and in terms of the artist, if an artist is comfortable doing something in 3D Max, we'll go with that. And V-Ray and some other artists is, you know. I was going to ask what you were rendering in. It was a, a V-Ray yeah. render, was it? Uh, no, no. Uh, uh, Redshift was mostly used, but V-Ray okay. was used as well. So so there were like a, a combination of uh, renders throughout. Yeah, we, we combined, you know, whatever could be working for each scene. I think we did, I think the cat was... That's something that wasn't expected that came out. And some, there, there was an actual, well, there was a dead cat. There's a dead cat that was shot. And at one point, sort of like way into production, Parker was just like, uh, you know, we have to, we have to do something about that cat. <laughs> and so we had to switch to CG cat. I, I had, and, I had, I had taken out of my mind that who killed the cat. Like it was, uh, yeah. yes, <laughs> that was a bit miserable at the children's party. Yeah. So that um, so mustache you're a, was you're a, a sick bastard, Parker. Yeah. <laughs> so 
So I mean, that's that's the thing. Like, what would what would be the right tool is really about sometimes it's about the artist and what he's comfortable with, or a group of artists that that are working with us, and we really try to be attuned to what what would be the the proficient way to do each different task. So we're not sort of like bound into one pipeline. We had some uh, flexibility there. And I think yeah. we, did, we did do some previews in Maya, I think. I'm fa- I'm just going back to what Parker was saying. I don't know if he remembers, but it was like, it's very true about the process, but I felt sometimes me, from my point of view, I had to preview this thing because I was like, I, I don't know what's going to go there. And I was like, I was I, I don't think he even remember, but on set, I was showing him. I'm like, is this what you when we were like, we were trying to preview a lot of things. I mean, one of the things that was standing up, just going back to that question, is the is the drone shot? Yeah, the drone that was the one previous shot that I ever saw. Yeah, I had and, and we were like, we I got a previous that I got to see how it's going to work. Show Parker and maybe just to just so I'm aligned with him. I think he has a very good visual uh, imagination. So I think he imagined those shots. So he's seen that in his mind. But I want to make sure that we're aligned. So I think we previous for ourselves, which is a little bit different than what we always do, but. We showed that to Parker and we're like, okay, we're aligned. That's what we want to do. And then I, some, so I think we did some previews for the burning house and I was showing him on set a little bit before, just to make sure that I understand what's the ultimate goal. So I know how to collect those different elements. So that was done. It wasn't, it wasn't a huge part of the process, but it was there sort of low, low key, you know? Yeah. And it was like, it was, it was, it was like, I, I, I remember you showed me uh, the, the, the previews of that, of uh, the ambulance shot and of the burning house, but it was like these were like mid-production. These were not things that were like built <laughs> in prep that then we could like plan yeah. off of. It was, I think, just making sure we were on the same page. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. That was that was the yeah. there. That was done in my yeah, we were again Parker had a very, very clear vision. Think about we talked about the nine-foot monster. Think about uh a first-time director that goes to all of the departments and says, we're going to build this monster <laughs> for real. And we're going to open the face and, uh, and it's only one shot. We're going to bring Tom. We're going to bring, you know, and, and it's only one shot. It was so specific uh, that, that, that um, if anything was previous, is for us to be technically understanding how to achieve something and not for him to envision it because he, he yeah. was... He was very clear about those things. I think he saw it. He saw it in his mind already. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah even uh, 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 circling back to your technical question, Mike. Yeah. Uh, this ambulance shot, for example, we uh, you can go the CG route, but we actually used photogrammetry in flame in order to uh, to do that. So the the the, the CG environment was built. Uh, there was there were four different takes that we stitched in there, and in order to do that, you cannot just blend and wipe two D elements together. So you have to map it in three D. And we actually, uh, Yuval, got to recreate one camera movement that blended all of the four camera movements and uh, fit into that window in a yeah, I think uh, we, we in a perfect we, way. We planned one thing, and then Parker saw it and was like, "No, I want I want the drone shot to just tilt, and while it's tilting, is entering the window." And I'm like, "This is this is impossible." And he's like, "Okay, <laughs> but, but, but can you do it?" I'm like, "All right, we have to create the whole building, and sort of like the whole surrounding." So we ended up using 
uh, Maya recreating the building, recreating all the geometry, recreate a new camera that will pick up on the drone and go all the way to the interior shot that was shot on stage. And then use, using photogrammetry in flame, recreating the whole scene, which was like, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of work. And again, I think people who watch the movie just take it for granted. I'm hoping. I didn't, yeah. I didn't hear anybody mentioning anything about that. But that was a tremendous amount of work. So, I mean, I'm yeah. sometimes we're happy to be invisible. And uh, we, yeah. we to, to make to make uh, to make you all's life, uh, you know, even more difficult. We also we we shot those two things in the exact wrong order as well, just because of how the schedule worked out. So, you know, we shot on the stage the push in through the window first because of our schedule and then we shot the drone after so we didn't have the drone to match to and it's wow. you know it's much yeah. easier to 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 match a a crane on a dolly yeah you know than it is <laughs> to, to, with a with a drone so um yeah it was it was there were that was a very complicated shot that i i do remember there was that one point you all where you were like I, I'm not sure, like if, if this thing, and then, but, but to their credit, they, they kept working on. I remember there was that that day uh, we were in the DI, and that one, I, that one, I know versioned up a lot of times, but we finally got on and we got into the review, and it was just like it was just that moment where you feel like, oh god, like it's perfect, like they did, you know, like they nailed it, and and uh, I was I was so grateful for that because I was like, again, it was one of those shots that was written really specifically into the script that that was all about. Um, you know, was really involved with the storytelling from the beginning and the, and the you know, the, the atmosphere that happened so early in the film. And um, I love the way that came together. Well, thank you so much for taking time uh, to go through the film with us. We really appreciate it. As I said at the outset, obviously it's been huge. It's found an audience. I, my research is correct. It's like, uh, I think it's like 10 times uh, it's gross than it uh, costs to make. Like, uh, it's, so I guess the question is, I think Rose has been last seen on fire, but is Joel going to come back in a smiling <laughs> sequel uh am i allowed to ask that question uh, you're allowed to ask that's 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 the question i get asked all day every day um you know uh, the, the sort of because for people that can't see you you're smiling right now but in a very non-eerie kind of way <laughs> um you know i would want to make sure that um if there was if there was more story to be to be told inside of smile that it was you know something that that um felt sort of unexpected and not like just you know a retread of what we just did in the first film um but might have you know a bunch of new surprises up its sleeves for for the audience um so but, you know you have to, so, have to so wait and see more than just extra dead cats okay good <laughs> glad to hear it again guys thank you so much for taking time to talk to us we really appreciate it thank you thank you mike well i want to thank the guys for that uh vico yuval and uh parker it's great 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 Talking to those guys is a deeply disturbing film, uh, Smile. So I hope you guys will check it out. It's really good. Um, but yeah, <laughs> just uh, gives me the creeps as it absolutely should. As I mentioned earlier, uh, coming up next time on the show, we have uh, Rob Legato, uh, one of the great visual effects supervisors and uh, second unit directors. Uh, he's just finishing a film now. He's just come back to LA. But uh, prior to that, um, he finished Emancipation, uh, which is an incredibly gripping and a true story. Uh, really an interesting chat, and I hope you'll uh, join us for that one. But until then, uh, and until hopefully John returns, I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks so much for listening. See you. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. Thank you.
This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.